here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It... I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel, and based on the weekend I have, I should sound emphysemic. And yet, here I am with my uh, 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 parrot-like clarity. Now, I was supposed to be complimenting myself, a parrot you don't want to hear, actually. With my uh, Chanticleer-like clarity. You squawky bird bitch. <laughs> I ran my scales right beforehand. I'm sure I sound adorable. Uh, you know, I'm sure my... Um, Newport smoking um, voice is groveling this week. Oh, um, do you, are you a Newport smoker? You know what? It feels it feels like I'm you know connecting to my youth, the '90s. My mother, um, you know, it's 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 kitschy. You know, sure. whatever you pull them out, someone's like, "Ooh, can I get a Newport?" My my aunt my aunt growing up had Winston's, and she would watch. Soap operas all day. And then she would let me watch game shows. So she enabled me to be the person I became. But literally still, like if I'm near like a like a carpet that still smells like Winston's or whatever, it takes me right back. It's like a quote unquote glamorous smell to me. Are Winston's like trash? I actually know nothing about the brand. I feel like maybe. I don't know. I feel like Winston's are fine. Winston's are okay. fine. Uh, what's, what I love the name did, Winston. What shows did she watch? Oh, she was an obsessive Days of Our Lives fan. Okay. Uh-huh. Wait, that's the one. Wait, is that the one where can Stefano pull off the baby switch? Yeah, Steph, Stefano okay. switching babies. I Stefano that. kidnapping Marlena. Yes. Um, possessions. Yeah, yeah, a lot going on there. Yeah. That's that the was, one Eileen was Davidson was on. Eileen Davidson, Lisa Rinna, um, other famous people. Jensen Ackles from Supernatural was on it. I, Kara Delevingne's ex-fiance, Ashley Benson. Oh, wow. You could truly say anybody, and I would believe it. uh, Yeah, Catherine Hepburn, she did five seasons. (laughs) You know what? Famously, um, Julia Roberts used to be like the, I wonder if she still is. She was like the biggest Days of Our Lives fan. Like she introduced them at like the daytime Emmys one year. Like she was like so into the show, like in the nineties. Uh it's weird she never did a cameo or anything, but like I wonder if Julia Roberts is still like checking out Salem. That would be fucking rad. You know what? I was just thinking about Julia Roberts because um and, and Kelly McGillis and Kathleen Turner and Sigourney Weaver, everybody who was really famous in the in, I guess in the late 80s, but really the 80s. Remember when you would just absolutely definitely see your leading lady in a trench coat in whatever movie they did? Every time. Just not not, like we associate the 80s with shoulder pads, but really long coats were what it was all about. I miss that desperately. (laughs) Julia Roberts would go on David Letterman. Yes. Or like the (laughs) longest blazer. 
Like the proportions were just fucking whack. It was talking heads. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I love a long blazer look. I guess we do. It, it's not that it, like. I think it's come back. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's around. You see it now. But once upon a time, it was just the standard. Here comes a professional lady who, you know, is starring opposite name a person, Eric Roberts, and she's got the she's got a giant vermilion blazer on. If you're listening at home, it took three minutes for Lewis to bring up Eric Roberts. <laughs> I, was, I actually was going to save him for the Top Gun discussion because, uh, or, or not Top Gun, not Top Gun, Ray Liotta, because I think he, Ray Liotta, and uh, 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 Eric Roberts had a similar track going where they they were like hot but also like dangerous. You know? uh, someone once asked me if Eric Roberts was your favorite actor. Do I really bring him up that often? <laughs> you bring up Eric Roberts like I bring up Days of Our Lives. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, he's remarkable. Is he the one who has the most IMDb credits? It's like between him and Christopher Lee, like the most movies they've been in. Yeah. I mean, after after Bruce um, Willis's um, final year, who knows anymore? But uh, yeah, Oh, that's right. Yeah. Racking rack up <laughs> His those. Bonanza. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Racking up those direct-to-Roku films. So, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> Roku minus. Yes. <laughs> I also love that this entire conversation came from me promoting smoking to teenagers. <laughs> yeah. The teenagers oh who I mean, listen to this podcast. I'm like well, I'm, in the milieu of like writing my book, which is like due very soon. And it's like set in the 90s. And I'm just sort of like trying to place myself back in that era. Okay. I'm drinking a lot of Snapple Apple too. Mm. I was recently acquainted with the fact that Snapple used to be an actual flavor of the thing. Like Snapple became the whole brand, but that used to be like a- an apple flavor of tea. Um, speaking of which, it well, was? If we're talking about yeah. Well, speaking of the nineties, I feel I'm still constantly unlearning what I learned in Dare, the drug and alcohol resistance education of our use. And I remember mm-hmm. specifically one time in a workbook we had to dissuade us from smoking. There was a character. A, a, a sort of grizzled lady named Nicotina who was supposed to make us, you know, hate cigarettes. I'm telling you, I was simply astounded by her glamour. I simply thought whatever <laughs> she has, I want it. Is it, I only remember is it lung Darren, cancer? I'm in. Yeah. I only remember Darren the lion. What did he who's do? Like, da- like Darren the lion, he just walked around like looking like, honestly, looking at photos of him now, he's like, sexy like a like old like adult simba like darren oh. the lion is darren the lion fucks all right he is he is looking fine uh and predates older simba like 93 um the 90s had a lot of workbooks didn't it yeah in school like there like we they used to give us a lot of like things that you had to fill out while teachers um you know did nothing it was in a, it was a lot of um xeroxed copies from workbook i i truly thought most of what you did as a teacher was stand as, at a copier and cry Just, <laughs> like, here, here i am like a minor character in nine to five yeah. uh yeah the the chokehold that xeroxes had on us um during that era i would love a trip to like the copy machine yeah oh I, I well, I was very obsessed with what was happening in the teachers' lounge too. 
you know, mm-hmm. the idea of sipping coffee and just muttering. Like you, you, you sort of had the idea there was an entire other half of your teacher's personality, and, but and maybe you even thought it was grim, but you had no idea, and you never found out. Right, because I think that was before the era where like we started to realize our parents were human beings too. Right, you, you sure, just thought exactly. of adults as like adults. Um, and when I try and think about like the shit that we talk about now, I'm like, is that what our teachers were talking about? Were right. our teachers that no. were our teachers just like hung over um, in the teachers' lounge talking about uh, the previous episode of um, Seinfeld or Melrose Place? Or they're like, did you see Julia Roberts in that blazer last night right. on Leno? <laughs> I would if they were talking about her blazer size I simply the, the, the missed opportunities because I was absolutely one of those kids who would stand at recess sometimes and talk with the fun teachers about what I was up to and they would indulge me and then I, I assume go to their car and drink but <laughs> uh, I learned not to trust teachers at a young age because you tell them something and somehow your mom would find out right teachers oh my God, were all the time Teachers were stitches, <laughs> and I learned early on in grade school: don't trust a bitch. Oh yeah, no, and like, <laughs> and they would like inspire confidence sometimes because they would come up to you and ask warmly, and you would trust them since you know they threw the spelling bees, and the spelling bees were your favorite thing. Am I projecting right now? Is that just me? I mean, I don't know if I've ever addressed this grudge on this show, but. Back when I wanted to be a fiction writer, like I wanted to write my own Goosebump books, I wrote a horror novel, like fourth grade, um, and it was set like at a like a theme park, like on a roller coaster, an evil roller coaster. I remember only having like one copy of this that I printed out, and I gave it to our substitute teacher in fourth grade, I rem- wish I remember this bitch's name, but it was Mr. Horowitz's class, and she was the substitute, or like teacher's assistant, one of those people, fourth mm-hmm. grade, gold of my year, Milwaukee, <laughs> 1996. Yeah. Yep. I gave it to her to read, and she never gave it back to me. What? As if you have access to a copier. No, yeah. that's her job. The Xerox Never gave it back to me. And she ruined my great American novel. Oh, I do remember I had a, um, in fourth grade, actually there's a huge saga in my family because I was in a gifted pull-out math class in second grade. And then I became ineligible for this woman's, uh, she had an entire gifted class for all subjects the following year. And like my, my points for whatever test I took were like a half point off or something, or this woman decided I, I shouldn't be in the class. And my mom was angry with her about it. Okay. Anyway, fourth grade, I am allowed to be in this woman's gifted fucking class. And she is old school. Like somebody who she like, like she, the kind of person who would have like games around the classroom that were like from the fifties for smart kids were like, you know, you move the pegs on the different poles and like, mm-hmm. anyway, it's like, like little mind games for strange children with large IQs. Okay. Anyway, um, I gave her, I wrote short stories when I was a kid. I wrote short mysteries that you could solve like encyclopedia Brown. Mm-hmm. And I gave her off my first couple. And I remember she, uh, and I was like excited to like endear this woman who was so frosty and, um, Miranda Priestly esque, who went by the name Marty, by the way, that should have been my first indication. Something <laughs> off. Um, uh, and she just wrote back on it, lowercase, in her weird uh, uh, Palmer Method handwriting. Great. 
That's it. Just great. Nothing. Wow. Lowercase. I wasn't even worthy of punctuation or a capital letter. Great lower text, no punctuation. In a response, like, via, like, text would devastate me. Right. Let alone handwritten. Like, come on. Like, you, you, you could have just put, like, a heart or something. Any, I don't know what I wanted. But. Anyway, now I'm a comedy writer desperately airing it out. Fourth grade were our um, villain origin stories, apparently. Right. Yeah. Anyway, um, (laughs) we're going to talk about Top Gun this week and summer movies we're looking forward to or not looking forward to in Lewis's case. I'm sure you can't wait for Thor. Oh, God. Did you know they're still (laughs) making these guys? Apparently, (laughs) apparently people love them. Uh, we're also going to talk about um, Italian X icon Ray Liotta. Oh, very sad that he died. I, I interviewed him a few years ago for some blog at some point. I don't even remember the movie he was in. Uh, in that case, he, he he had such an awesome perspective on his career. Rad person. We'll get into it. You guys love Ray, Ray Liotta too, I'm sure. And we're also going to talk to comedic genius Adam Conover today. And we'll see if he ruins this podcast. <laughs> I think we're doing a good job without him. But fine. Ira and Lewis ruin keep it by themselves. <laughs> uh, we'll be right back with more of it. All right, Lewis. Uh, you know, I was... Uh, I was taking a drive the other day, and um, when Pensive. I got up, yeah, you know, and uh, I took the highway straight into the danger zone. Oh, you don't fucking say, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Top Gun Maverick finally opened in theaters this weekend, and uh, it's already the biggest debut of Tom Cruise's career with over $160 million, which is wild to me. Yeah. Also, it kind of surprises me that there is a lasting cultural memory of Top Gun. I'm not saying it wasn't a sensation at the time. It obviously was. But that's not a movie I see on TV now very often. You know, and it hasn't it hasn't um, held on the way something like maybe The Breakfast Club has where you just keep running into this movie 100 times a weekend. Here is what I'm going to say about Top Gun, which I fucking loved. I thought it slapped. I like uh, the last 30 minutes. I have documented on this show, you know, uh, my daddy issues. Uh, okay. And I think that a lot of people... Thank you, who, Demi. <laughs> I think that a lot of people who were like our age or parents in the 80s um, and early 90s, and then also people who were the age that we were in the 90s who like were growing up like without fathers or like with complicated relationships with their fathers movies like this movies like the creed reboot like Mm -hmm. this is specifically for them this is about men dealing with their emotions and i think that like top gun the original is like one that's sort of been like i guess dormant in the minds of men um and it was just reawakened by this movie because i was sobbing men were sobbing okay okay (laughs) this movie is about men loving other men and not in a gay way but maybe in a gay way 
<laughs> Thank you for telling me that because I had no idea. Uh, <laughs> I just think that's where I, it's been, you know, like, and right. I don't think mm-hmm. movies like this are particularly made anymore. Not just like the blockbuster that's sort of like, you know, like um, a movie like this, because like sometimes those Tom Cruise still makes these movies, right? Like the Mission Impossibles. But like this specific kind of movie is really sort of rare like a movie that's really just about like the bros like supporting the other bros and like saving your best friend's life i think also it's not just that there's that emotional quality which is a sort of a hidden gem of the movie it's also juxtaposed with the cocky bro energy so you Mm -hmm. get both right because you get a lot of glenn powell raising an eyebrow and snickering in tom cruise's face you get you know val kilmer uh, squaring off again with Tom Cruise and both loving him and criticizing him. So you get that. Um, but, but, but I think it's that that juxtaposition makes you feel like you get an entire male character, which I'm, I, I'm sure fans of the original really like. I will say the original Top Gun, thinking about how quote unquote iconic or legendary is, it's a pretty conventional movie. Like yeah. the, the actual plot of it, nothing really surprises um, but I will say I did miss, I already brought her up, Kelly McGillis. And I also missed Meg Ryan, who they just decide has died. Come on now. <laughs> we want to see Meg Ryan. What an amazing opportunity this would have been to see Meg Ryan. Uh, Tom Cruise didn't want to see Meg Ryan. I fucking guess. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. It's weird that she's not in it. But um, let me tell you something. This movie is very conventional, too. Yes. As as it, I feel like it taps into my heartstrings and it feels like such a good summer movie because it it like follows like every sort of like um beat you're expecting it to follow and also i will say the the directing is heavy-handed in that every time i mean it was like watching days of our lives which every time the camera lingered on a photo of maverick and goose i'm like girl i know he's dead yeah, <laughs> we remember. Yes, <laughs> and, and it was every, a little um, nostalgia overkill for the first forty-five minutes. It was. Mm-hmm. Um, but damn, Tom Cruise is a star. Like he is a fucking star, and like he's still he feels like Tom Cruise. And like I know we've been inundated with like all of these Mission Impossible films, which are iconic by the way um you know how i feel about those movies um but he's like he feels different than ethan um in this movie too like he's still tom cruise but like he's still he's still acting i also think something really impresses about him uh when you compare him to the other performances where like the young guys are all i've already used this word but mainly just cocky like that it's not really about gravitas ultimately and there's something about the way he responds with like you know these classic um maverick quips you know a character will say to him i don't like that expression on your face and you'll say it's the only one i've got and he doesn't say it like flatly like john wayne would say that for example he says it with almost a self-deprecating air somehow. There really is an unexpected, I don't want to say the word humanity because that feels like a crazy word to say in conjunction with Tom Cruise. It's going to win the Humanitas Prize, okay? That's what Top Gun Maverick is going to (laughs) win. But but there's a shocking groundedness and 
yeah, hu- humor that is that isn't going for a hard laugh either. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a, a sort of lived in sensibility about this character that is deeper than expected. I loved um, our boy Miles, Miles Teller in this film. Okay, here's my problem with him, though. And I, I do love Miles Teller's acting. I don't love the headlines about Miles Teller, which have been frightening to me recently. But... Um, Miles Teller, there's a twist regarding his character in this movie, and it would hit harder if we had met that character well enough beforehand. But he really had like, what, six or seven lines before we were told, oh, he's this he's important in this other way, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it was also nice to see him lighter in this film. I mean, like, so the. The scene where they play football on the beach, you know, is just as fun as the original volleyball scene in the first movie. Um, and it was nice seeing Miles Teller smile, I guess, because I don't know if we've seen him smile in any fucking movie he's been in in the past 10 years. They're very depressing no. movies. Yes. And his first breakout role was Rabbit Hole. And he sort of just kept that streak. Yeah, that that dead baby movie. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, <sighs> that movie's rough. <laughs> yeah, that, that's among the rougher movies you'll ever see. That's that's among the hardest crying I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> Viola Davis said, "Calm down." Yeah. Uh um. What is wild about the movie, though, is I don't know if um you got this, but um. Nicole Kidman's AMC um, ad comes on and then it transitions into a video introduction that Tom Cruise made to like welcome you back to the theaters. And I'm like, if only she thought to um, put a clause about that in the divorce proceeding. (laughs) But by the way, it's sort of a testament to the brilliance of Tom Cruise's PR team that it basically smash cuts from Nicole doing her gay monologue about sitting at movies to him. And I didn't think for a second, (laughs) oh, there's some irony there. Like, really, like, I don't associate those two names with each other, even though they were utterly, like, hyper-famously linked once upon a time. Um, I guess she herself has moved on in a very serious way, too. But I'm shocked that you have to tell me, oh, isn't it fucking weird that we went from Nicole Kidman telling us to go see movies to to Tom Cruise telling us to go see movies? And it it didn't strike me as, you know, tragically ironic or anything. I mean, and it's not like Tom Cruise's monologue wasn't um, as gay as Nicole's ad either. Um, (laughs) Welcome back to the movies, fellas. (laughs) <laughs> I've missed you so much. <laughs> he should have been wearing an old timey Usher outfit. That would have been fun. <laughs> I believe that he has eyes in every screening, so he might as well be an Usher. They're just they're just right. watching no, how true. everyone reacts to this movie, and they're like, "If you're not if you're not crying, you get shot." Right. Well, also he ends it ominously. the The message says, uh, "Uh, we made it for you." Which is so Big Brother us. Uh, but by the way, we must talk about Jennifer Connolly in this movie. Okay, among the thankless roles a human being could have, Jennifer Connolly in this movie is mostly <laughs> leaning over a bar and smiling at Tom Cruise. I mean, that's all she has to do. But were you also surprised? She has lighter hair in this movie. And uh, at times, she is a dead ringer for Kate Walsh. At times, I was like, wait, is this Kate Walsh in this movie? They looked utterly the same. 
And in fact, it felt like they were sort of in conversation with each other. And I'm glad they were, because in that way, the movie passes the Bechdel test and fails every other way. Jennifer Connelly and her daughter talked about homework at least once, right? So, Oh, mm, I don't know. We'll have to check with the judges. And I, Allison, if you're there, tell, let us know. <laughs> um, I mean, the last thing I will say about this movie is um, we talked about how bad that Gaga song was. Um, it yeah. really hits how bad it is when he holds her hand at the end of the movie and then you just have Gaga screaming, hold my hand, hold my hand in the theater. <laughs> and like, it sounds even worse in surround. Right. And also, again, it's going for epic and it's trying to match. I guess she sings loudly enough that it sort of satisfyingly ends the movie. But otherwise, again, I wouldn't even really call it a song. Yeah, it's just it's, it's sort of a mantra. It's a it's a cult mantra. Uh, maybe that's what she and Tom were cooking up. Could be. I just feel like this is a pattern Gaga picked up around the Born This Way album, which has tons of songs that are just short of a good hook that she kind of ruins by over singing. And she goes back to that every once in a while, you know, perfect illusion. I'm looking at you. You know what? What you are not going to do is come for songs written by Kevin Parker. Okay. We are not (laughs) going to do that to Tame Impala today. Uh, Mm. Anyway, um, it's hot as hell in New York right now. Uh, Top Gun, I feel like, kicked off summer officially. Um, sure. What else are you looking forward to this summer? Well, the word out of can is a bit dubious, but I really am looking forward to Baz Luhrmann's Elvis movie, even though he is, I think, my least favorite mainstream director. I find him constantly disappointing, but I want to see what he does with the just an era I really love. I love foundations of rock and roll as we know it or uh, the rock era i know elvis wasn't the, the first rock singer i know he is lifting era. entirely from black men but uh yes <laughs> i'm interested in whites uh it's gonna be, it's gonna slay um i always love when people discover one that um people just go fucking crazy at can um because like so i remember someone texting me they were like um this movie got a how long standing ovation? I was like, this happens every year, baby. Like, there's always one movie where it's like they, they like they they clap like Oprah just gave the entire audience cars. Right, uh, and and the deal is they're excited to be there and they're excited to be around the stars, and so it's a very there's an air of privilege in the room about everyone getting to be there, and they confuse that for quality. Mm-hmm. And people always discover when a new Baz Luhrmann movie comes out that this man is a heterosexual. Right. He's sort of just an, an, a normal straight guy. Which makes sense. It makes sense. It makes sense because his movies aren't great. Right. <laughs> right. It's, that is sort of the missing ingredient. You know, Moulin Rouge, the thing that's missing is hot gay men. I would say that the only... Um, one of the few straight men to accomplish like a gay fantasia is Robert Zemeckis. Death becomes her. Definitely, yes. The, I think Baz Luhrmann's greatest accomplishment is directing the performance of Elizabeth Debicki in The Great Gatsby. She fucking slayed in that movie. Ugh. You know what? what also slayed in that movie? The soundtrack. And that's usually what is great about a Baz Luhrmann film. The beat. I like the beat. Yes, right. <laughs> 
Um, no, and Lana should have been nominated for that song because that really nailed the languor and the just, just the, the 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 patina of glamour that the Great Gatsby has, and also the sadness underlining everything in that movie. Mm. Um, I am for some reason looking forward to um, Jurassic World Dominion. Jurassic Park has entered the realm of Star Wars where I just feel we have explored every possible facet about it. We're going to get into like micro movies about Stegosaurus plates. (laughs) Uh, I also was watching the trailer for Dominion and I recently revisited Jurassic Park uh, and it's still fucking amazing. Um, But the conceit of that into Lost World um into what we're in now is like they've become action movies like you've got uh chris pratt running around jumping on ice um like they're like flare guns like it's it's all like you're watching mission impossible it's like you're watching Mm -hmm. an avengers movie and that's not what the original jurassic park movies were i actually would also compare it to star wars in that the thing i love about the original I mean, aside from the action sequences, is that the characters are amazing. The, you know, and they're one of a kind. I can't really put them into any other movie. Like Laura Dern in Jurassic Park only belongs in that movie. Sam Neill, Jeff Goldblum, et cetera. And that goes for the original Star Wars movies where like there's a real sardonic edge to the humor in that movie, to Carrie Fisher, to uh, Harrison Ford, of course. And as the movies keep getting churned out, that one-of-a-kind character thing goes away. And Chris Pratt is sort of in the tradition of the people who precede him in these movies. But also, I don't know, if he feels like he could be anybody in a way. Well, you know, he talks to dinosaurs. <laughs> That's right. That's his thing, yeah. right? Like, he talks to in the Velociraptors. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, Chris Pratt is in Thor, Love and Thunder, uh, which... I'm looking forward to because I do love Taika Waititi. And I know you have your thoughts about Ragnarok. Uh, yes. I, I mean, I, I went there intending to enjoy it and I just got Kate Blanchett taking that check and well, really that's it. I, I don't think she gave us anything else. I mean, the main movies I'm looking forward to this summer are Fire Island and Bros. And I've actually seen both uh, thanks to being friends with the people who made these movies. But really... Fire Island, which is about going to Fire Island, a place we talked about last week on this show, and Bros, which is Billy Eichner's uh, Apatow-produced gay rom-com. These movies really get into the nitty-gritty of uh, being uh, a gay guy in 2022. There are certain things in this movie that I really, in these movies that I really thought I would never see. First of all, in Fire Island, the explanation of casual gay drug use is unparalleled. I mean, you'll learn about ketamine. You'll get jokes about ketamine. Your parents are about to learn about ketamine. Your parents are about uh, to learn about G. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, and as somebody said to me, there's this weird danger about this movie where it feels like your parents are straight people in the middle of the country are going to watch this and think, oh, it's exaggerated because it's a movie. But actually, the events in Fire Island are not exaggerated. I would call it basically a journalistic rundown of what occurs at a gay resort. I would also describe Fire Island as journalistic. I absolutely love the movie. Uh, I feel like it's great, by the way, it's so much fun. I feel like if anything, it's 
yet journalistic and toned down. Yeah. No, PG-13 in most ways and quaint. Yeah. I mean, that's because it's a Pride and Prejudice adaptation, too. Like, it's so good, but also it feels sweet and quaint in a way that doesn't feel neutered like it's a love victor or something you know it feels like it's honest but it's such a joy to watch and i'm looking forward to bros as well and you get glimpses of debauchery like they'll show you a dark room at a gay party where like actual banging is going on and then they play with that comically too which is cool to see but then you know you get back to the romance of it you get back to the sweetness of the friendships in the movie uh, and also, by the way, if it were literally just about friendship and that's the main focus of the movie, that would have been enough. But it really succeeds on a number of layers. And I'm just so impressed with Joel Kim Booster, who wrote it, the, uh, this adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, stars in it. And it, I think it's my favorite acting moment of his, too. He, he basically plays, you know, a relatable pro- protagonist who has flaws. You know, he's vain, a bit concerned with... Uh, uh, maybe concerned with um, sexual satisfaction and 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 uh, conquering Fire Island in a certain way, but that's also relatable. I think everybody comes to Fire Island with some ambition of some sort. You know, it's not just I'm going to go there and relax. It's like no, you want the the vigor of uh, a gay experience when you go there, and this movie captures that. You know, my favorite acting moment of his was episode five of Sunny Side, but I'm more of a Joel Kim Booster connoisseur. Than you. Oh, I see. Wow. <laughs> All right. You've done the homework. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's absolutely great in the film. And um, I'm like proud of the work that he's done on it. And um, it's, it's really such a joy, actually, to see a movie like this with so many of your friends in it, involved in the making of it, because they're all great. Bowen's great. Yeah. Matt is great. Nick Adams is great. Like every everyone is like really like at their best in this film. So it was a joy to watch. And I'm glad that I got to see uh, it's coming to Hulu. You can watch it um on Hulu, but like I was glad I got to see it on a big screen with a bunch it, of games. I thought it really gained something on it. Yeah, because it's a movie you want to scream at. You know, there's lots of uh uproarious comic moments, etc. So it's it's fun to watch in a theater, but you know. When you're watching Drag Race this coming in the coming weeks, you can watch this alongside it and, you know, bring that energy. Bring the screaming at the bodiness. Uh. I texted Lewis this week because I was like, this episode of Drag Race was made for you. There have only been a couple of times in my life where I was either experiencing something or watching something. And I thought, this is only for me. I can't believe this is happening. It feels so catered to me and almost in a way like you did a bad drug and now you're, you're, you're concerned the world is funneling in on itself or something. In this episode of Drag Race, Vanna White was not the guest judge, but they surprised the queens on the runway and it was a pageant-themed uh, category. It was actually Vanna White Glamour, I think was the name of the, the theme. And they just surprised them with Vanna White on the runway as they walked. So you actually got... All of the queens spontaneously reacting to the glamour and star power of Vanna White, one after the other. And these old queens in particular were fucking living. Raja reacting to (laughs) Vanna White and literally putting her face in her hands and saying, oh, my fucking God. I feel like I'm over here always touting the greatness of game shows and and, 
just how fun they were, how much I loved them and how much I, I want to be a game show host, et cetera. To watch other gay men react to Vanna White like she was, I mean, it was it was like a president was there or something. Uh, very affirming. Well, it'd be, Amazing to see. It taps into sort of like what we were just talking about at the beginning of the episode, right? Like with um, your... your um, your aunt, you know, like smoking Winston's, you know, like watching her soaps and then letting you watch game shows. So it's like you got to see Raja, but, you know, I love seeing like Jada and like Monet and Shay reacting to like Vanna White, too, because it was like that was the era where um, everyone was connected by like this stuff that aired during the daytime and whether it was your totally. aunt whether it was your mom whether it was your grandmother like watching their soap operas and then watching like wheel of fortune it's like we all grew up on vanna white totally and it's just she's that rare person who has had the same job for 40 years like even people on soaps for the most part have been turned over there's they're a little bit less than but vanna has literally been there four decades doing the same thing and she loves it. When she does interviews about her job, she's like, there's a famous quote. Somebody said, have you p- fulfilled all your career ambitions? And she replied, yes. <laughs> Ding. She's Win, tur- Vanna White. She's turned every fucking vowel, okay? Yeah, right. Any, one time she turned cues, okay? She's got versatility. <laughs> I feel like I feel like the only way for her to fulfill something new would be like if we discovered new letters in the alphabet. <laughs> yeah, when she gets into yeah, uh, Cyrillic Wheel of Fortune, that'll be a fun turn for her. Wheel Literally of, a turn. Wheel of Fortune. Hieroglyphics. <laughs> <laughs> Solving the puzzle takes years. Yeah. All right, well, we're back. Adam Conover from Adam Ruins Everything joins us to discuss his new Netflix series, The G Word. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now... Is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And (laughs) I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside, and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life.
You know him from his show, Adam Ruins Everything, and now you can see him in his new comedy docuseries, The G Word, on Netflix. Please welcome to Keep It, Adam Conover. Hey, thank you so much for having me, guys. Hi. Oh, my God. And he's coming in with that classic uh, morning zoo resonance we love. Yes. Yes. (laughs) You know, this microphone, my my friend who's a music producer said that this microphone is often called the secret weapon for the male voice on radio. And so that's why I picked it up. I want to sound like Howard Stern, I guess. I don't know. Oh, yeah, you've always reminded me of, yeah, Man Cow Muller, all, all yeah. the greats. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's how I got my start, telling racist jokes on Long Island. You know? <laughs> it's worked out for you, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, thank you so I, much for having me. I have a very important question about the G word, which you produced with Barack Obama, um, mm-hmm. you know, about, and it's about the government. You're focusing on sort of one topic, I guess, instead of, you know, the, the minutia that you would dig into on Adam ruins everything. The first mm-hmm. big question is about the first scene that you filmed with Obama. Unfortunately, I feel like he ate you up in these scenes with his comedy, like acting. <laughs> like he is so good. And when did you realize that, like, he is just like a natural on camera? I mean, it's infuriating. I knew it going in that he could, you know, deliver a joke because I used to see him do, you know, the White House Correspondents Dinner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember specifically the year that Seth Meyers did it. And Seth Meyers is a great comedian. He spent, you know, his entire life trying to perfect those skills. Barack Obama was so much funnier than Seth Meyers that year. I remember <laughs> being professionally angry and thinking Seth Meyers must be angry, too. Uh, and yeah, you know, I mean, I, I have timing and can deliver a joke because I spent, you know, I've been doing it for 20 years. I spent 10 years doing comedy for free in basements in New York City in order to do this. This motherfucker's running the free world, right? And, and somehow he is funnier than me. Give me a bro. I don't think he's funnier than me. I think he's very funny. <laughs> that's the only that's the only way I'll beg to differ is I do think I'm funnier. But, you know, because I, I, by the way, wrote the lines that he delivers so give me a little oh, bit of okay crap. that's a good save okay. that's yeah. a good save <laughs> yeah. yeah no uh no it reminds me of when like professional athletes are funny for some reason like no this is my job do you understand <laughs> like i don't go and play basketball in front of you and do it amazingly yeah. and it's know? annoying when you watch him go you know michael phelps going on snl or whatever and they're bad that's annoying it's even more annoying when they're good because it's stay in your lane be good at one thing. We want you to be a good swimmer, good runner, whatever. We want you to suck at everything else so that the rest of us feel a little bit better, you know? But I, I, I love when they have people on SNL who are athletes and then luckily they're terrible. Like I remember specifically one time Nancy Kerrigan was the host. I was like, look, if Nancy Kerrigan's going to be funny, I'm going to just quit the business. And then luckily she was like a three. <laughs> and it's okay to not be funny. You know, it's all yeah. right. It's okay. You know, I, 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 I went to the white house correspondence dinner this year. Um, and, uh, they sent me there to promote the show and, Joe Biden is the right amount of funny, I think. He he delivered, he got a he got through the monologue, he did a couple jokes, he got some laughs, they were good. He did a film sketch with James Corden where he basically just sits there while James Corden runs around him in circles and sweats. And <laughs> that's what we want. We want someone who can have fun with the joke, but not someone who's gonna outshine the professionals, please. 
Uh, but no, it was a it was a lot of fun. Uh, work. It was also very fun giving the president notes. That was the best part was when we were sitting there and uh, I was like, hey, uh, Barack, could you do that one a little bit faster? And he's like, yeah, of OK, of course, whatever you need. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit, I just I just gave a pre I just gave a former president a note and I didn't get it shot by a Secret Service agent. It was kind of an out of body experience. <laughs> I'm still picturing what James Corden was doing with you. And it sounds like he's just a 1920s film actor. Yeah. Uh, the sound hasn't been invented yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he, that's what he was doing with, with Corden though, specifically. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this series, uh, what was it like approaching this as opposed to, you know, Adam ruins everything. Right. So, uh, you know, this show came about because uh, Barack Obama's production company optioned the Michael Lewis book, The Fifth Risk, which I had read um, and is an incredible book about the inner workings of the U.S. government. Um, and they were, wanted to make a TV show out of it and they needed a pitch. Right. And I pitched and I said, hey, what if I do it? Like, I'm interested in the government. Let's uh, let's, uh, you know, spend six episodes diving into it. And uh, the challenge was that, you know, on Adam Ruins Everything, we would always look for a topic that we knew the audience would be interested in, that had an easy in for them that would take us to an interesting place. Uh, for this show, it's like kind of a topic that a lot of people are not interested in or, or specifically our as our angle is, our, as our thesis is, we don't want to talk about the government in America. We love to argue about politics because that's fun. We get to argue about people and how stupid they are and et cetera and make fun of them. But we spent four years, you know, arguing over who's going to run the government. Almost none of us know anything about the thing that those we're actually hiring those people to run. Um, that's all oh, that's boring. I don't want to hear about it. Oh, you're gonna make me hear about the IRS. Ugh, right. Um, and so the challenge was, uh, finding a way to approach it that would make it really vital and important to people, um, that would, that would make its importance, uh, leap out because the truth is it is one of the most important topics in America. It is fascinating. Um, it was just a matter of, of making it interesting by talking about how it affects our everyday lives. And that's sort of where I am as a comedian now is I enjoy, uh, you know, there's no, there's no topics that you can't do with comedy. There's just topics that take a little bit more work than others. And so for me, now that I've been doing this for so many years, it's, it's a lot more fun to, to say, okay, how do I take something that people think might be boring and show them why it's fascinating? Is it daunting to create a show about the government while working with a former U S president? I mean, <laughs> did you think like, Oh, I can't really be, you know, myself. Cause I mean, watching Adam ruins everything. Not that you're, you know, uh, uh, upending the entire world or sc screaming that like all U.S. presidents, namely Barack Obama, are horrible or stupid or whatever. But I think you would probably prefer the option to be critical over somebody like that. And it must be strange to work with them. Uh, that's true. And that was the strangest thing about the project. Um, but, you know, I approached it uh, much the same way that I approached being on advertising supported television when I was making Adam Ruins Everything for True TV. We did topics that you know, what, frankly, most of the show was about advertising scams and, you know, mm -hmm. the, the problems with capitalism and consumer culture. And here we are on advertising supported television. And sometimes that entailed, you know, a tough conversation with the network where, you know, I had to go to battle with them. Um, and, you know, the fact that I was willing to go to battle and fight for those topics and most of the time was able to win. That's why I was able to, like, sleep at night doing that show. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I took a similar approach here. When we got started, the first thing that I said to, you know, uh, the people who work for the people who work for Barack Obama, which is the, you know, that's that's who I'm working with. 
I said, look, everybody, the death of this show will be if it is seen in any way as being propaganda for, you know, Barack Obama's preferred policies. And it cannot be that. And they said, yeah, we agree. We're concerned about that as well. So I said, well, the way to solve that is to give me editorial independence in the show. I'm going to cover the topics that I want to cover um, and cover them the way I want to cover them. And they agreed to that. Uh, and that was the way that we made the show. And we did lots of topics that, uh, over the course of our six episodes that are critical of the Obama administration. Um, we talk about, uh, you know, the over-reliance on private partnerships, you know, private businesses, rather than, uh, you know, public programs uh, that, that I think the Affordable Care Act uh, is emblematic of. Uh, we talked about uh, the government's uh, development of drones, of unmanned combat drones, and how those went up by tenfold under the Obama administration. Like, we talked about those things. Um, and you know, there were a couple times that there were tough conversations, right? When I, when I told them we were doing the, the drone segment, they were like, uh, are you, are you sure you want to do that? Um, like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure we are. I'm sure we want to do that. Uh, because my strategy is always to find the topic that the audience thinks we won't be able to do that people that the cynics in the crowd will think, well, no way is he going to talk about this? I lit when this show was announced, I literally had people texting me going, bet you're not going to do drone strikes. And I was like, well, guess what? Motherfuckers <laughs> we did. So what are you going to talk about now? Um, and, uh, and so that's, that was my approach to, uh, solving that problem. Now, uh, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that this is the most, you know, pure work of journalism of all time, because, yeah, there's a, a, a there's a president's name on it, you know. Um, but uh, within that constraint, which is all that we can do when making content under capitalism is work under the system that we are stuck under. Um, we pushed as hard as we could to do a show that had integrity and, um, you know, didn't cover the government with neither fear nor favor is as the, I think the cliche goes. Um, whenever I think of the work you do, I am reminded of what I consider a really golden age of infotainment that I grew up with. Like for, for example, like on this show, we're very trivia oriented. I in particular am very trivia oriented. And I think I wouldn't be that way if it weren't for shows like Animaniacs, mm -hmm. if it weren't for like things that really like drilled you with information while also giving you like something other, something else that was more whiz bang and, um, entertaining. Yeah. And I was wondering, was that the kind of thing that really affected you growing up and shaped your comic sensibility? Because I feel oh, yeah. like while we do have infotaining stuff now, once upon a time, it was just a much more Bill Nye yeah. uh, kind of uh, television universe. Yes. And there's a fascinating reason why this is the case. Um, I was... I was obsessed with all those shows. I watched Bill Nye, Beekman's World. Be I was—I literally was just mm. thinking of that. Be yes. Beekman's World, frankly, to me, better than Bill Nye. I actually had the had the joy of uh, interviewing Paul Zaloom, who played Beekman on my podcast Factually a couple years ago. Um, incredible show. Animaniacs is another great example. I watched Animaniacs daily, uh, and the reason shows like that existed. This is this is going to bring me right back to my theme of the government. Is that in the nineties? Uh, there started to be this big outcry about how much uh, commercial programming was on kids' TV. You know, I don't know if you remember, like in the late 80s, kids' TV shows were literally 10 minutes long and they would have 20 minutes of commercials um, because kids would sit there and watch everything. So uh, Congress actually passed some laws that reduced, you know, um, put a mandate on the amount of commercials that could uh, be on kids' TV. And they added an educational content minimum 
that was uh, mandated that that every broadcast network, uh, you know, every broadcast station, NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox affiliate had to have a minimum amount of educational content. And the reason they made those shows like Bill Nye and Beekman's World were in response to that government mandate. Um, now, f f flash forward to 20 years later, all the content is on cable and on streaming, which those laws don't apply to. They only apply to broadcast television. Um, and so we no longer are pushing that incentive to have that um, educational programming. But you're right. There was a golden age of educational kids content on commercial TV. These, those weren't PBS shows, right? Those were commercial mm -hmm. shows. Um, and yeah, I grew up watching them and they, and they deeply affected, uh, my, what I do. And actually when I started doing Adam ruins everything, uh, I found that kids almost immediately started watching the show. I didn't expect them to, it was on at 10 30 at night, you know, but, uh, we immediately developed a huge fan base among kids. And I think it's partially because kids love to learn these things. They love to laugh and, you know, they love it when those things are next to each other. And so I'm very happy to be. Uh, carrying that torch forward, um, I wish it were a little bit easier for more shows like that to get on television because, you know, the, the biggest barrier that I face is when I go in front of TV executives and try to pitch and I tell them, no, people love to learn things. People love information. They don't believe me. They're like, nah, unless it's true crime, nobody wants to learn anything. I'm like, no, that's not true. People, and, and by the way, I think uh, the, the success of the show that I'm working on now is proof of that. And so maybe we're making that case a little bit more to the, to the industry. I'm going to say similarly, something about you that feels like a throwback to me is just the general sense of humor, like the, um, not just the no the knowledgeable quality you have, but the the, the cynical quality. The uh, it just reminds me of old comics like Greg Fitzsimmons, or uh, that that just in the '90s you'd turn on TV and somebody be rolling their eyes at something, and <laughs> like you loved it, you know. And I wonder if you feel kind of like a step out of t I guess like someone like John Oliver is sort of like that, but like even that feels a little bit more. I don't know. Pat Sajaki to me, like uh, main, main, traditionally mainstream. Do you feel like your humor is also a bit of a throwback? Oh, that's a very good question. I, I've I haven't really thought of it. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I I did grow up again watching Comedy Central, you know, and and the sort of comedy there. And you're right, there's a lot of eye rolling at at society and culture and media um, that uh, uh, I think I'm sure influenced me. Um, but I also think that like. Uh, I'm, I sometimes feel that I'm pushing into something new, which is that the comedy that I do, I think is also fundamentally sincere, um, mm -hmm. that a lot of comedians throughout history, quite rightly so have taken a cynical point of view. Everyone's a liar. Everyone's a cheat, you know, and I do comedy where I'm like, Hey, uh, some of the comedy is about, Oh my God, this person's incredible. Like on this show, you know, I introduce you to these, you know, incredible government employees, um, the folks who are inspecting our meat every day, folks who are flying planes into hurricanes so they can measure where the hurricane is, where it's going, make sure people can evacuate in time. And those people are only doing those things because they um, give a shit, you know, because the uh, uh, it, it pays well, but uh, it's a government job. You know, they get they get good health insurance, but also they could all be making more money working for a private company you know, flying a private jet rather than flying into a hurricane. But they choose to get up and do that every day because they know somebody needs to do it. And that's incredibly anti-cynical. And a lot of the comedy I'm doing is like, isn't that crazy? Isn't that incredible? Um, which which to me is like, I'm not going to say it's brand new in comedy, but it's not something that I grew up seeing. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I guess I have a foot in both worlds, I'd say. Mm. I would ask, um, too, um, 
you know, we know you so much for Adam Ruins Everything and now this, you know, like we were discussing, you know, like the infotainment comedy. But I'm like, is what would an Adam Conover sort of like stand up special look like? Or is that something that you feel like you have any interest in? Like, is that the kind of comedy that you did like when you were doing comedy in basements and like you're like, I've gotten away from that shit now? Or like, do you still think that there's other avenues of comedy that you want to tap into? Oh, Ira, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, I, in fact, <laughs> I, I, in fact, do still perform stand-up comedy. And if if the if people are interested in seeing me, you can find my tour dates at adamconover.net slash tour dates. Traveling, I'm doing a big summer tour, going to Phoenix, Nashville, all over the place. Um, so, yeah, uh, look, I got my start doing stand-up comedy. Um, it is my first love in comedy. It is still my favorite form of comedy to have that direct connection between the comic and the audience with nobody intermediating it. Um, to be able to just like, it's one of the most direct forms of art. I think just people talking to people. Um, and you know, I've been incredibly busy working on TV over the past five, six years. Um, I have never been able to put together the exact stand-up special that I wanted to, but I'm working on a new hour now that is called Pay Attention. It's all about uh, my own diagnosis of attention deficit disorder. It's about the attention economy and TikTok. It's about um, our own cultural in inability to pay attention to anything. Uh, it's uh, I'm really proud of the material. I've been working on it for, for months now. Uh, and uh, I hope to film it as a special. This tour is to really, you know, bring it out, bring it to people and, and take it across the country and and put the final touches on it. Um, so I hope folks come check that out. AdamConover.net slash tour dates. I think lastly, I want to ask, like, how does it also feel? I feel like you were recently thrust into, like, the the main Internet conversation through your, um, you know, anti uh, Caruso. Um, right and now well now you've got you know like kim kardashian um <laughs> opposite you uh has political activism been um something that you want it to like be you know a part of outside of your comedy or is this just something you felt that like you needed to do um because you live in la um and it's important to you i mean it's something that i think comedy has brought me to that the work has brought me to you know uh i i've had the experience and adam ruins everything of sharing the truth about the world right we do the research we find out things like you know oh my god uh, uh polygraph tests don't work and the criminal justice system is incredibly biased and corrupt against defendants and you know innocent people are being thrown in prison you know and i and i did that on national television and i was like i did it I fixed things, right? And then a couple years later, I was like, oh, hold on a second. The cops are still using polygraph tests. They're still throwing people in prison who shouldn't be mass incarcerated. I, I said it really loud and people saw it and they were like, wow, great. But nothing changed. And I started to realize that, you know, we need political change to uh, to actually, you know, create the better world that I'm like screaming for. Um, and so, you know, a lot of this show, the new show, The G Word, is about me wrestling with that problem. How do I actually create that change um, instead of just shout about it on television? And uh, our entire final episode, episode six, is all about uh, how you can create that change in your own community, about the answer that I found to that question, which is that uh, change is local. That, like, especially when it comes to criminal justice reform, it's all local, right? Mass incarceration is caused by your city or county district attorney, which is a race that you can vote for, and you probably don't know the, know the name of your county, city or county district attorney. I certainly didn't before we were working on the show. Um, 
And so, uh, you know, we make a plea. We profile these incredible activists in uh, Philadelphia called Reclaim Philadelphia, who got Larry Krasner, the progressive DA uh, elected there, who's changing criminal justice. Um, and we saw like they're making a massive change in their own community. And you can, too. And that led to me getting more involved in local politics here in Los Angeles, which I'm very enmeshed in now. It's incredibly satisfying work. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I ended up speaking out about Rick Caruso because I was like, nobody is, nobody is saying this yet. Nobody is noticing that, you know, we're a we're about to let the election be bought by another mini Trump here. Uh, a dude, a real, a billionaire real estate developer with a tan who won't release his taxes. Is nobody, <laughs> is nobody seeing this? What's happening? Um, and so I just needed to do a little bit of shouting about it. Um, but even more important than, you know, my tweet. Right. And far more important than Kim Kardashian's Instagram story is the work that we can show up to do every day, like in our actual political systems. Like what I'm pleading with people to do is to, you know, make your tweet on make your tweet about politics. Go for it. Then find a meeting that you can go to of a local group that's working on an issue that you care about. Homelessness, criminal justice, reforming, you know, whatever party you want to be a member of, uh, et cetera. And just like find the low level group that you can go join and show up to every week and then show up the next week and show up the next week. And then once that happens and you meet activists and, and they start saying, hey, Adam, you're pretty involved in this. Uh, would you help us organize a fundraiser next week? Would you help us get the word out about this election? Would you go knock on doors? Um, once you're doing that, you don't have time to like scroll Twitter and be depressed about the state of the country anymore because you are suddenly too busy and you will so quickly see the fruits of your labor. Like, and once you do, I've had that experience. Um, once you do, like, the you suddenly realize the sky is the limit for how much you can change in your community. Um, and so that's that's what brought me to that. And now you're standing across the aisle from uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, who is uh, stumping for Rick Russo <laughs> and the bravery it takes to face the goop empire. Yeah. Oh, my God. Bill, you know, millionaires love billionaires. That's the thing that we learned is like if you're a millionaire and then uh, hold on a second, a billionaire wants to talk to me. Oh, the billionaire really wants to talk to me. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, yes, Mr. Billionaire. I can help. Oh, oh, sure, sure. Let me help you in the in the in the in the fight of, of wealthy people like that's all that's going on there. That's literally all that's happening. I mean, literally me when, you know, I'm at dinner with someone and they want to pay, you know, all I need is two, <laughs> all I need is $200 thrown on the table and for real? I'll do anything I want. <laughs> for real. Adam, uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, and thank you for the G word. I, f I found it like really um, fun to watch. I hope that I hope that you continue to do um more of this actually i would love to know more not just more about how the government works but maybe how other other governments work dig into the french government <laughs> oh that's i mean you know netflix is international and so maybe they'll want me to do a follow-up specifically for france i would do it i'd do it i mean look they're calling this a limited series but people seem to be watching it and in success you never know what they'll want me to do so um i and look no matter what i'm gonna keep doing you know, educational, informative content like this that challenges and provokes people because that's, I don't know, that's what I was put here to do. So I really thank you for bringing me on to talk about it. Yeah, thanks for being here. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. 
and you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Iconic actor Ray Liotta passed away last week at the age of 67. He was in the Dominican Republic filming Dangerous Waters uh, and died in his sleep. And I don't know anything about the plot of Dangerous Waters, but it sounds like an Ashley Judd vehicle from 94, which is exactly <laughs> what I'd want to see Ray Liotta in. You can just picture the font for the movie. Like, it's a little bit swimmy. <laughs> um, I was half shocked, but not really shocked by, like, the outpouring of like sort of like um sentiment um from people like our own age really like for Ray Liotta um when he passed and it sort of like hit me that a lot of the roles that he was in like covered I think like the gamut of like um specific like 90s film experiences Goodfellas Mm -hmm. Field of Dreams like that 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 covers you know the whole like sort of like bro macho sphere, but also like emotional shit. You know, like field of, like field of dreams is very much in that vein of um Top Gun. You know about yeah, oh, men certainly. crying with other men, Dead Poet Society, all those movies. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it, we'll start with Field of Dreams, where he plays Shoeless Joe. He appears basically in a dream. He's like you know a mirage kind of. And he really has the star power to pull that off. Uh, watching that movie back, he just, you can't take your eyes off him. He lends the movie the sort of transcendent quality. It needs to be more than just, you know, kind of a schmaltzy movie. Uh, but also, obviously, he's legendary in Goodfellas. I, I, when you tell me to think of a crazy laugh in cinema, Ray Liotta in Goodfellas comes to mind first. But also, something's interesting about his career. He would just pop up everywhere. You know, he sort of moved away from being a prestige actor into, you know, somebody who would just be in everything. You know, this guy who's in Hannibal and B-Movie and Date Night and Heartbreakers. Okay, first of, course, of all, oh my God, Heartbreakers. Shades of Blue is prestige TV, okay? Oh, for, he, for he had, he had For me. Yeah. <laughs> he and J-Lo did what needed to be done. Which was, get a check. I mean, that's what <laughs> needed to be done. Honestly, can we study this moment in American history? J-Lo on a primetime cop show. What? It still shocks. It's, 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 like, it's like, it's so remember weird. Remember when Celine Dion did a cooking show for four years? No. What? You know? It's so weird, but it's also, I guess, sort of that, um, pendulum of celebrity because it made all the sense in the world that j-lo would have been doing that in like 2016 but then i feel like the um the a-rod breakup and then back into ben affleck like catapulted her back up to like a plus celebrity and not like a minus she's always been a but like it's it's the minus or plus that's sometimes in front of your name I continue to be baffled, but um, I want to say about 
Ray Liotta, he, I, I would compare him maybe to someone like Mary Steenburgen, where at the beginning of his career, he was like award worthy and like a star. And like, we were figuring out what to do with him. And then as the, his career moved on, you would just see them in everything mm-hmm. and they would be, you know, kind of, um, utility actors. You're always happy to see them, but they're not super, um, prone to be in one genre or anything. They just belonged wherever they ended up. Though I do have to say, I thought he ruled in Marriage Story. I wish that performance got a little bit more traction. He was so fucking good in it. Uh, I think, you know, like Laura Dern and um, Adam Driver got, you know, like the most of uh, the accolades for it. But he was so good. Uh, I thought he had, I thought, and the scene with him and Laura Dern was just like, that scene was electric to me in the way that um, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver like n- never mustered that sort of electricity in the film for me. Right. Uh, well, they were very screamy and Laura Dern and Ray Liotta are in, as the Dern character says, a street fight. Yeah. You know, they're like u- using all of the tools that are disposable to get their clients what they need. Um, I-, I actually love Laura Dern's win for that. I know it's a dubious win for a lot of people, especially because she got she won in the year where people were obsessed with get ready, Jennifer Lopez and Hustle. <laughs> uh, do you think do you think Ray was on um, separate text chains with both of them? During that year, oh, I would love to hear. Oh my God, is that what killed us? <laughs> Coming between, you can't handle it. <laughs> I've had enough, ladies. <laughs> um, I I really did love them in that movie, though. It sort of reminded me of like um, like Intolerable Cruelty, a movie yeah. which isn't perfect, but someday someone will get that movie right. I mean, it's basically now, Adam's Rib, but like, there's really been no good Adam's Rib remake since then. Um, and, and Intolerable Cruelty tries to get there, but you know, it's like, I think Marriage Story, the scenes between them, comes the closest. I just want to say that I continue to be baffled about the movie Adam's Rib. This is a Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy movie from uh, 1949. Where Continue to be baffled my, by a movie from 1949. That is, that my, is, that I, is the Louis mantra. Yeah. <laughs> In that movie are both Jean Hagen, uh, later her signature role is, of course, in Singing in the Rain, and Judy Holliday, who... Uh, won the Oscar the following year for Born Yesterday. Both of those women basically gave identical performances in those movies, and yet, and they look a lot alike, and yet they are both in Adam's rib. I just, it, it boggles the mind that that actually happened. Moving back to reality now. Um, Ray Liotta, another movie he's great in. I assume you're a huge Something Wild fan. I mean... Uh, let me do that. Let me say that again. I assume you're a huge Something Wild fan. You know that I consider myself a demisec. <laughs> which which is what we call Jonathan Demi fans. <laughs> Such an unusual movie in his career. Obviously, like nothing connected all the movies he made there other than great performances, but something wild, a caper that was both romantic and extremely intense. The kerfuffle the Melanie Griffith character gets in with Ray Liotta is uh, not cute, and Ray Liotta is fucking scary in that, which reminds me of Get Ready... Eric Roberts. <laughs> you know what? I would actually say that what I think connects Jonathan Demi is that um, is it's like a bit of horror and comedy. Yeah. Oh, in- intensity and comedy. Yeah, because you know, like something wild is very much like Psycho, and that it's almost two different movies. 
You know, yeah. like it starts as this light comedy um, with Melanie Griffith and Jeff Daniels. It's like, oh my God, you're impersonating like my husband, like at my high school reunion. Uh, ha ha. And then Ray Liotta shows up and it turns into a thriller. Yeah, right. Well, also, let's talk about Rachel getting married for a second. Seems like a, a normal family drama, but then the psycho thing occurs. And I mean, Deborah Winger slaps you across the face. And if that's not a Hitchcock level terror, I don't know what is. <laughs> uh, Sorry, mean, punches you in the face. Punches <laughs> you in the face. I mean, then there's Philadelphia, you know, married to the mob. Um, the truth about Charlie is a thriller in that I'm always terrified um, that Mark Wahlberg and Fenderway uh, Newton um, decided to remake Sherrod. <laughs> right who gave them who gave them the right, right. <laughs> uh also very underrated um ray liotta film is um corona corona another movie that Him i used see all the time on tv and i feel like it's lost to time well whoopi goldberg is the exact person where she's in a ton of movies that everybody used to used to see and now there's no conversation about them like jumping jack flash terrible movie burglar terrible movie growing up you saw it eight times <laughs> um i mean i feel like in my household uh, my grandmother had every whoopee movie from that era on vhs so like if if i didn't see them on tv i would just like re-watch them often but um wow i mean like eddie right what uh, Whoopi, I mean, like, Whoopi Goldberg stayed starring in movies throughout the 90s. It's just, you won't believe what she chose. Um, yeah, we only think of really, like, Sister Act, Sister Act 2, Ghost, and Soap Dish. But, like, ugh, Made in America with Ted Danson. She, <laughs> she did that movie where she reinvented a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, but she was starring in it. Like, she goes back to Camelot times. Yes, and then there's... Uh, Theodore Rex. See? The associate, where she plays the a associate. white man in business. She plays, uh, what's his name? Okay, uh, that's funny. Robert S. Cuddy. <laughs> <laughs> she did that. Uh, oh, her movie was, it was A Night in Camelot, and it was a TV film from 98. Uh, uh, a Wonderful World of Disney film, which... Some, a dubious world of Disney. Some, yes. I, I mean, someday we just really need to tap into the um, lost classics from the 90s that were wonderful world of Disney, like Sunday movies that are truly only movies that people are. A, if, if you're younger than us, you have no idea these movies exist. No, right. They're being kept from you. They're not, shall we say, jumping out of the vault. I wonder if this is on Disney+. Plus. Oh, my God. Because I, I remember when Disney Plus was rolled out, they... They quote unquote had everything, you know, that wasn't Song of the South or whatever. So maybe Ray Liotta, uh, consummately good actor, always thrilled when he popped up and stuff. Surprised he fucking died. Yeah. Wild movie that he's in that people always forget exists. Operation Dumbo Drop. Uh, VHS classic. I can picture exactly <laughs> where it was on the four star <laughs> video shelf in Lamont, Illinois. <laughs> All right. Well, we're back. Keep it.
And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. As usual, it is Keep It, Lewis. What's yours? Well, mine's exciting because I'm saying keep it to both sides of an argument. So <laughs> I, I'm not here to make friends, etc. cetera. Um, You're coral. First keep it goes to, yeah, yes, I'm just like coral. Yes, I'm going to teach everybody about Marcus Garvey this episode. Um, uh, my keep it to begin with is the promo pictures for Bradley Cooper in the Leonard Bernstein biopic, Maestro. Okay, I mean, they dialed them up to look like Leonard Bernstein later in life, and it's giving Rick Baker, it's giving uh, <laughs> Undercover Boss, it's giving... <laughs> it's, it's so... It's just, it's just hilarious how much biopic promo picks follow a pattern the can you believe an actor is doing this can you believe his nose looks different now you know i guess monster with charlie's there and is the classic example but you know uh jessica chastain is tammy faye renee zellweger is judy garland there's a special thing though, where they have men and they cake them up like they're mrs doubtfire like leo yes, in, right. in, leo in um j edgar Totally. No, I want to emphasize there is a Mrs. Doubtfire quality about the makeup here, too, which just adds to the LOL, why are we doing this factor? But also, I do want to say keep it to people who are cynical about biopics. I mean, I like I feel like on Twitter all the time I see people being like, oh, look, he's wearing all this makeup and now people are clamoring for him to get an Oscar and getting an Oscar should be more about just a physical resemblance. Honestly, when I saw the movie Judy with Renee Zellweger, I, I mean, I think literally she was my keep it beforehand. And then I saw it and I, I thought she should win the fucking Oscar. It's an electric performance. So I think it's fair to be cynical about the promotion of biopics, but I don't think it's fair to be dismissive of the of what a biopic can bring quality wise. Like, look, this may be interesting. I'm sure there's a lot most people don't know about Leonard Bernstein. I'm happy the information is going to be out there. I'm happy people are going to be probably reabsorbing his entire career, especially in the wake of, you know, someone like Stephen Sondheim's death, the re- uh, people appreciating West Side Story again has been nothing but awesome to me. But um, I will offer to that, you know, like for an actor being under that much makeup, it's probably a bit freeing to give like an electric performance. You know, it's a bit, you know, like um, like the Italians, you know, when they would um, don a mask for the Commedia dell'arte. <laughs> a pantalona, yes. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you come from the theater. Yeah. Uda Hagen over here. Yeah. Worst of the prosthetics for Maestro. I just want to say that in the trailer for Elvis, you see Tom Hanks playing Colonel Tom Parker, who's Elvis's manager. And the prosthetics that they have on Tom Hanks are what really should be um, sending somebody to the gulag. <laughs> By the way, I am worried about that performance. I normally don't think of Tom Hanks as unhinged or out of control or living the protagonist's life from the Christina Aguilera song, Not Myself Tonight. But it seems he is doing just that in this movie. <laughs> what, are you saying that Baz Luhrmann doesn't often churn out actors' best performances? <laughs> I know, it seems wild, <laughs> but... Uh, all right, Mike Evitt this week goes to um, Stranger Things. Well, I'm always surprised when Stranger Things comes out that everybody has kept up on it and they are fucking thrilled for it. Not I that am. it's bad or anything, but it's everybody's favorite show secretly. I, I feel like because of the time that elapses between each season, like it's easy for like it to be dormant 
like people don't go crazy about it um all the time um but when it comes back you're reminded that like your favorite thing is on i fucking love stranger things to be honest uh -huh. i think it's great uh it's weird that it's it's weird that it's one of the final um shows of the like earlier netflix streaming era before they canceled everything right in the grace and frankie category yeah. yes um but my specific keep it isn't to the show. Uh, season four is starting out um, pretty well so far. I'm not done with it yet. But um, there's a musical moment in in episode four that you know everybody is talking about, um, and it involves Kate Bush's iconic song um, "Running Up That Hill," a deal with God. And I just want to say. Congrats to Kate Bush, you know, congrats, you know, to Stranger Things for running up those sales uh, for this song. <laughs> but <laughs> those sales, my God, she has other songs. And I'm not oh, just God, yes. saying keep it to Stranger Things. This is to Pose, which which did yep. this only like three years ago um, with like, I think it was in the premiere of Pose. Uh, it was it was very much in um, the romance between um, Evan Peters and India Moore. Um, it used the exact same song. And I'm like, if you were a music supervisor doing a show in the 80s, I implore you to listen to anything else in Kate Bush's discography. Yeah, it is kind of like if they used Madonna in TV shows, but only Material Girl. You know, like only th the song you definitely remember of hers from that time. I'm like, can we get some love for Hounds of Love? Oh, please. Oh, Cloud Busting. Oh, what a beautiful song. And she produced that whole album herself. Kate Bush. This woman's I, work. I, 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 this woman's work. Yes. Uh, uh, Maxwell Inspo, Kate Bush. Uh, no, it, it, it must be said about Kate Bush. She really is one of these people. First of all, nobody has more, nobody has inspired more people. You can go right down the line. It's like Tori Amos. It's PJ Harvey. It's, big boy. Uh, yeah. Big, big boy. Yes. Big boy. Obsessive uh, Kate Bush fan. Um, and her, 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 her legacy speaks for itself. But, and I want people to discover her music. And this song is fabulous. And there's a recent cover by somebody named Meg Myers. I really enjoy running up that hill too. But uh, you're right. I hope people do the homework. I hope they discover more of what she's done. But once upon a time, all you heard about Kate Bush was Wuthering Heights. I feel mm -hmm. like people would bring that up in a gag because her vocal on that is so um, iconically strange and um, shocking and pixie-like. It's a loving... Babushka we love. <laughs> yes. It's a loving keep it only because I feel like this brought out of the woodwork to a lot of black Kate Bush stands. Um, because mm -hmm. we exist. Um, but I feel like what's always lost in the conversation is like to be a Kate Bush stand means that like you understand how weird she is. And I feel yeah. like running up that hill is like such a conventional song in so many ways that um, you can become obsessed with it, but not obsessed with just how like weird Kate Bush is as an artist. Yes. I, Kate Bush is as brilliant as an artist can be while also seeming 100% like a Christopher Guest character. She's Just Janet from another the, planet, okay? She is keeping, yes. she is holding you hostage in a hole in a basement all summer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Just a weirdo peering into the camera, uh, you know, sustained strange eye contact, very Parker Posey. Yeah. Um, I, need to, I need to visit some classic, like, Kate Bush interviews. 
I'm sure you have a oh, favorite yeah. one. Um, well, sh- she didn't give a ton of interviews. She went on press tours for her albums at the time, but she- then she became a bit of a recluse thereafter. A woman um, in the window, her- if you will. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, I love Big Sky by Kate Bush. I love uh, the entire album, The Dreaming, or uh, uh, Sensual World, great album. Anyway, not... She's uh, wonderful, and, uh, and and no one sounds like her. No, no, like there's something about the voice that is only her, and you you can't you don't replicate that by getting, you know, whatever comes up on the allmusic.com list of artists like her. You know, it's only Kate Bush. Lastly, I want to say that uh, all the talk about Kate Bush um, led me to one of the funniest tweets that someone sent me this week, and it was um, from. Um, Zach Budrick, um, a reporter at The Hill, and he tweeted, um, seeing a lot of people on here praising Kate Bush who were condemning her husband, George, just last week. (laughs) 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 And it's even funnier because of the, the, like, earnest responses. No, they actually aren't married. (laughs) American politician and former President George Bush and... British rave, Kate Bush. <laughs> I want to see that first lady series, though. Yeah. Oh my God. Just, just cast that. an imagined fantasy. It's just Kate Bush married to George Bush. I'd watch it. Also, but speaking of that, you know who could play K- Kate Bush? Kind of now. I already brought her up this episode. She in the eighties looked exactly like Mary Steenburgen. So anyway, they should collab. Okay, you're really pushing the uh, Steenburgenda this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to push something, I got, yes right you know what i'm not i mean talk about the number one couple to stand sorry ed harris and amy madigan <laughs> all right that's our episode uh-huh and as a reminder keep it is not on next week so we will see you frightening in two weeks you you sounded like Chuck Woolery right there. We'll be back in two and two. Yeah. Um, same same keep it channel, same keep it time, <laughs> but in two weeks. Thanks again to Adam Cotto for for joining us, uh, and that's our episode. Keep it is a crooked media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Fertel. Our editor is Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nara Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for our production support every week. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.